Welcome to the Time for the Good News podcast, the place where you'll hear nothing but good news. We are your hosts, Susan and Dan Grandfield. Okay, welcome back. This is episode five of season two. Now, Dan, I've got an interesting fact for you. Tell me, tell me, tell me. I love facts. So I was looking at some of the stats around our podcast and you can see where our listeners are listening from. Yeah. And we have a new listener in Reunion. Uh, amazing. Do you know where Reunion Pray is? Pray tell where Reunion is. I, I did not know. So when I looked it up, it's an island in the Indian Ocean east of Madagascar and it's an overseas territory of France. Bonjour. So bonjour to our listener Je in Reunion. Je vous in Reunion. <laughs> Showing your French skills there, Dan. <laughs> So um, I'm thinking it'd be really nice if we could go and meet them and actually record an episode from... Reunion. From Reunion. So if you're listening, let us know. Cool. Sounds good. Excellent. Maybe we should kayak there to reduce our carbon footprint. <laughs> might take a while there. We could. We could. Yeah. Okay, let's park that. <laughs> anyway, so welcome back to everyone. Um, so uh, we love that we get new listeners all the time. Um, and we also love that we have very regular listeners too. And with that in mind, we really, we're going to ask for your help, which we don't often do, uh, but we want to reach more people. And the way that seems to be the best way to do that is for our podcast to have more reviews on things like Apple Podcasts, um, Google Podcasts, Spotify, etc. So I know many of you um, listen to us via our website or the, the Buzzsprayer our hosting website, but we'd love it if you'd go into whatever your other podcast provider is, Apple, Google, Spotify, and leave a review and not that we want to even tell you what to do but I think five star reviews tend to get the most traction so if you enjoy listening to our podcast and we know many of you do please please help us to get more people um, you know into our time for the good news family by doing a review. Spread the good news create a community. Exactly exactly so let's give people a taste of what's to come Dan what are your stories about this time? I've got a story about moss Moss. Interestingly, I've got a story about talking mushrooms. More to come, more to come. <laughs> and then ants as well. Some A story about ants. Okay, that mm. sounds very intriguing. Mm. Somehow they all seem connected. You can yeah, imagine it's all from the natural world, yeah, perhaps. Yeah. That's right. Well, my, my stories are um, an animal superhighway. Cool. Um, how to create livable and lovable neighbourhoods. Right. And then also helping a giraffe to walk again. Oh, that sounds cool. Mm. So those are my stories. So Dan, do you want to kick off with your first story? I certainly can. So, scientists have trained a colony of ants to sniff out cancerous cells with amazing accuracy. So, individual ants only need a few training sessions. Not sure what that looks like. (laughs) Ant personal trainer. uh, To learn the scent of cancerous cells, which make it more feasible, fast and less laborious than using other animals. Right, well, like dogs. Dogs, of course, man's best friend. Mm-hmm. It's animals uh, or creatures with a great sense of smell. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah, so yeah. dogs, of course, have that. But dogs are probably a little bit more problematic when it comes to misbehaviour and things like that. Yeah. Ants apparently can be trained very quickly. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So it's the first study of its kind. Researchers say that it shows the potential of ants to act as cancer biodetectors. Right. So I've got horrific visions of being covered in ants as they swarm around but it's not like that it's not like that so cancer cells produce specific compounds which can be picked up by using high-tech equipment or animals with especially sensitive noses like dogs like i just said dogs can smell cancer 
and one study found dogs could sniff out lung cancer with 97% accuracy. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know there was a lady who could smell her husband's Parkinson's. That's interesting. So the olfactory system, Mm. you know, if I'm sure it can probably be trained like the other systems uh, with us as well. But training dogs, which we normally go to as man's best friend, as talked about in Mm -hmm. one of our first ever podcasts, um, is lengthy and costly. So this French study, interesting, talking about reunion a minute ago, Mm. um, decided to try insects as their olfactory system is crucial to their survival. So if something's crucial to a creature's survival, it's going to be enhanced in in how it works, isn't it? Mm. Um, So... The ant species is Formica fusca. So it's a specific species of specific ant? Specific species of ant, okay. which has previously demonstrated it's quick to learn. Mm-hmm. So ants obviously have different learning speeds. Well, who, who knew that? Mm-hmm. So the researchers set up an arena, an ant arena, in which an ant would be presented an empty tube and another tube containing the cancerous cells. Mm-hmm. All right. They then conditioned the ants to recognise which one. And it took 30 minutes, oh, wow. just 30 minutes to get this ant to mm-hmm. recognise the, the one with cancerous cells. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they did that. Uh, well, I'll come on to that, actually. So they can sniff out the cells um, and they can detect the cancer odour. And it's it's called associative learning. Right. I think you probably know about that. Mm. So once the ant smells the cancerous cells, it's given a sugar solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, basically that's how mm. things are trained, aren't they? Yeah, like uh, Yeah, it receives a dose of this when it recognises the cancer cells. So, Dr. Baptiste Picaret mm-hmm. of the University of Sorbonne in Paris, obviously bioscience boffin of some description, um, is leading the study, and he says that different cancers produce different odours. You know, so they tried a second challenge. Um, was to get the ants to distinguish between two types of, of cancers. Yeah? All the ants were trained the same way to detect breast cancer. Halfway were taught to recognise one type and the rest another type. And the ants proved themselves to be just as good as dogs at detecting cancer cells and could differentiate between the different types wow. of breast cancer cells way. that they were using. Amazing. So, obviously... It all needs further testing. Uh, and as I said, before you envisage being covered in swarm of ants, mm. that won't be necessary because yeah. they'll they'll use body samples, yes. urine, saliva, sweat mm. um, for them to, to detect it. But also they are want they want to do body odour generally. Mm-hmm. You know, if they can get the ants to detect body odour, how are they gonna do that without the ant crawling all over you? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um so yeah. Um, I mean, pretty amazing stuff. I mean, you know, we learn more and more. I've got another amazing story in a minute or two about about the natural world. But, you know, just these clever people out there doing this stuff with insects now. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, we know dogs do all sorts of amazing Mm. things, but, you know. I suppose when you think about it, think about, you know, ants be easy to train. But if you, you, you know, if you've ever watched ants doing their thing... People yeah. do things with military precision, you know. Yeah, how you yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. learn to do that. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Did they not used to have ant circuses or um, or was that fleas? Fleas, I think. Fleas, was yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But if you change, you know, fleas were they just having fun or were they yeah. trained to do that? <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Cool. Well, um, sticking with animals, but but much bigger animals now. We're talking um, sort of big big cats primarily. Um, 
so this is a story about um, the world's largest wildlife crossing. Okay, now you've done, I don't know whether it's the world's smallest, remember the dormouse? Over the railway line. Over the railway line. Cute. So this is kind of the other end of the, of a, the same spectrum. So this is, it's the largest wildlife crossing, letting animals roam over 10 lanes of highway in Los Angeles. 10 lanes? 10 lanes of Highway 101 in northwest uh, Los Angeles. How long is this bridge must be? Pretty long. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pretty long. Uh, I mean, if you think about, yeah, I don't know what a that distance is, but, but yeah. very long. And, and so the interesting thing is, um, so in this uh, Highway 101 northwest Los Angeles, there's a lot of mountain lions and cougars and pumas, yeah, yeah. sort of you know um, that, that live around there, and they typically wander a territory spanning 150 to 200 miles. But what's happened is because of the 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 road infrastructure that's been built over years, they're basically now in a, a kind of they've been kind of relegated to like an urban island. So they oh, so they're okay. restricted in being able to roam. So the habitat's been been restricted, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And so what's happening is there's interbreeding going on right. and so the genetic diversity is being affected. Yeah. yeah. Um so this um this it's called, it's gonna be called the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing, named after the president and CEO of the Annenberg Foundation that are the primary sponsors um of it. So it's a family foundation that supports um, non profit projects. Now, it's going to cost $87 million. Wow. But they're doing it in partnership with uh, the National Wildlife Federation, the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy. Conservancy. Didn't know that was a word, but there you go. Um, and basically what this, this foundation, this family foundation does is they, they um, look get getting grant funding and investment for projects like this. It's, it's a really interesting organisation, actually. Um, so they're building this. Um, it's going to benefit mountain lions, cougars, pumas, but also coyotes, bobcats, deer, snakes, lizards, toads, and even ants. Wow, ants as so, well. Uh, you, know, you know, all all ends of the of the, the world. I've got a vision. I've got a vision of you know the Lion King thing where the the yeah. the sat looking at the sunset. Yeah. Got this vision of all these creatures yeah. sat on this bridge looking at the looking sunset at with cars driving yeah. underneath them. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Who knows? But $87 million is a small investment to prevent hybridisation and, you know, reducing creatures' yeah. environment, isn't it? Well, what the, um, Wallace Annenberg says is um, this is about bringing more attention to an ingenious solution so urban wildlife and ecosystems like this one can not only survive but thrive. So the other thing that I find interesting is the crossing is going to blend in with the surroundings. So it's going to be covered in soil and native plants. Okay, okay. So the Santa Monica Mountains Foundation has created a special plant nursery to grow all of the, you know, the, the, the sort of native plants that come from that area. And they will then be um, used to cover. Well, I presume our animals will detect something unnatural. So they're not necessarily going to use it unless they're encouraged to Yeah, yeah, to it's going so, to feel like part, an extension of their habitat. Yeah. Plus it's going to look nice yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, so is, they're aiming to complete it by 2025, which oh, right, isn't cool. that far away. So they've, they've broken ground, yeah. so it's already underway. And the other thing about this is that not only is it, is it about the animals, which is the key part of this story, but it's going to help keep motorists safe. Yeah, so of course. These big animals, these big cats, yeah. straying out onto onto the road. We, do you remember a story we did during the pandemic about the amount of uh, mammals killed Yes. On American roads, and it drastically uh, reduced, hugely, and it was half a billion mm. uh, vertebrates were saved due to reduction in road traffic. Uh, mm. and that's an example, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. wow, good stuff. So, 
Oh, yeah. yeah, it's a bit like the Dormouse Bridge over mm-hmm. the railway line. It's a slightly bigger slightly project. Bigger, but honest, yeah. with the same intention. That's it, yeah. absolutely. Great stuff. So, you know, this, this is kind of, kind of a bit balmy, actually, but I'm, I can see balmy. this. No, this is a bit balmy. <laughs> right, I okay. can see the sense in it, though. So what do you think absorbs CO2, filters out pollution, and supports wildlife and looks great? I don't know. Tell me, Dan. Moss. Moss. Yeah, now I was... Struggling with the looks great mm. thing about moss, but okay. So a Dutch startup called Respire are developing a bioreceptive concrete, which allows the abundant growth of moss on it. So moss have rhizoids instead of roots, uh, and uh, which I did not realise moss is is not invasive to building facades. Oh right, so, so it's yes, not it's like yes, it's not like ivy. Yeah. Or stuff like that. It just sits sits there on, on top of it. You know, we quite often remove moss mm-hmm. from our houses or, or things like that. But apparently it's not invasive. Mm-hmm. Um, so moss converts CO2 to oxygen, mm-hmm. much like trees, etc. And absorbs and removes pollutants from water and air. Right. Boasts, yeah, boasts biodiversity by providing habitats on otherwise bare concrete surfaces. Mm-hmm. It retains water and cools via evapotranspiration, so it keeps the building cool yeah. as well, interestingly, because it's shielding the surface from sunlight. Right. However, I, in my head, I've got, how do you heat the building up? Or does Moss do that as well? But it didn't say that, so I'm not sure. Okay. So Respire is headed up by Orky Bleach and Team Pioneer. It's a Dutch name. I'm not sure if I pronounced it correctly. So if I've got Dutch listeners, I do apologise. Um, and he states as well that it requires minimal maintenance, looks great, and is even graffiti resistant. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And to get the facilities managers on side, you've always got to do that, yeah, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, he said applying the mossy concrete helps protect the underlying walls, because it will do from light and water, mm-hmm. um, or surfaces against weathering, extending their lifetimes. So if you imagine those sandstone buildings in Glasgow, the weathering is from the, the sun and rain, isn't it? But mm-hmm. also from air pollution mm-hmm. which the moss will defend against mm-hmm. so actually will lengthen the kind of surfaces of the building lengthen mm-hmm. the life of the surfaces yeah, of the yeah. building amazing so it can also be applied to existing structures and can be bioreceptive from the start right mm. meaning it will start working doing uh, photosynthesis and, straight away, yeah, yeah straight away so they've also devised a way to use recycled concrete which is great, to create the product. And I now focus on making the process more equitable. So in other words, making it viable commercially. And it's interesting reading that part because for me, I'm thinking, does it need to be economically viable? Should we not be funding projects like this Mm. um, to cover our buildings in things that help us deal with pollutants and things like that. But, you yeah. know, at the end of but the you're, day... you're a commercial a, guy. You there's a, yeah, there's a business there at the end yes. of the day. Yeah. I also had in my head, I mean, you don't watch many um, films like I do, but there's quite often in these films where the explorers come through the jungle there's all these buildings covered in yeah. in uh, moss and plants and things like that. I've got that kind of mm-hmm. thing in my head that you go into the middle of Birmingham where I'm working at the moment. And all the buildings are green with this uh-huh. with this moss all over. It's kind of cool in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at the moment, they are greening concrete balconies on social housing apartments in Amsterdam's Rivian Burt, as well as collaborating, collaborating with Dutch renewable energy firm 
Eneco to work out how to green the base of wind turbines. You know, wind mm. have massive, remember Whiteley's, mm-hmm. they have massive concrete bases, don't yeah. they? Yeah. So they're, they're slowly engaging with smaller uh-huh. concrete based things, but I think that'll be a great a great one for the future. Yeah, um, You know, there are, you've seen those, McAllen Distillery is actually almost in the hillside. It has a grass or yes. turf mm-hmm. roof. And there's quite a few mm-hmm. eco houses in Scotland that have grass. T- yeah, we have stayed in a turf yeah. house, but moss mm-hmm. is is even better yeah. by the looks of it. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, incredible, incredible. Yeah. Well, m- moving on to my next story, which is um, this started as a story from Glasgow, which as many of you will know is, is the, the town or the city that I'm from. But as I looked into it, actually, this is this is going on all over the world. Um, and so, yeah, so it's, it's much more, I guess, of interest to to more global audience. Uh, and it's been going on for a lot longer than I, I thought. So it's about livable or lovable neighbourhoods. Um, there's lots of different names that are given to the same concept around the world. So 15-minute um, neighbourhoods, um, complete, complete communities, walkable neighbourhoods, all the mm. same kind of thing and then the key thing is that 15 or in Glasgow's case they're doing 20 minutes I could make some joke about why it has to be longer in Glasgow but anyway it's <laughs> not but it, this concept of these 15 minute neighbourhoods um, and this is something that I'd really encourage listeners to after they've listened to this to go and see what's going on in your local area because it, there's a lot of this going on in the UK in Europe in America in Australia and what it is, is it's basically creating a, a neighbourhood, a place where you can access all of your day-to-day needs within 15 or 20 minutes of walking. So you never need to get in your car. Hmm. So all of your shopping needs, you know, in terms of getting your food, education, outdoor spaces for exercising, socialising, everything is within 15 or 20 minutes of your home. Yeah, that's big. So starting to create mixed use areas, which yeah. is which we've moved away from in, in you know sort of recent years and decades. Um and, and I think for me this is this is it's clearly a structural and infrastructural, you know, town planning type of change. But I think it's also a mindset change about how we live, how we move around, how we interact mm. with with people and mm. with our local mm. community. Um you know, and this really benefits people who don't have cars or those m- more and more people who are choosing not to have cars for environmental reasons. Um, because, you know, when you live in the outskirts of cities um, and, you know, you, you, you need to get in your car to go places and you need to, hmm. um, uh, yeah, you need, you're more reliant on that. And public transport has still got a way to go in terms of, you know, meeting, meeting needs effectively. Um, so, you know, as I say, it's going on all over um, the place. And in fact, in Glasgow, the first tranche of these 20 minute um, uh, towns is going to be in Mount Florida. Oh, wow. We used to live there. Yeah, yeah that's where I cool. had my first flat. So oh, it's right, part okay. of one of the first tranches. So, I mean, the benefits, probably people can, can work this out for themselves. But, you know, the benefits are improved physical health and mental health. Yeah. Being able to you know, walk around more. Um, traffic is reduced. So air quality is improved. Local shops and businesses thrive, which mm. we saw happening in the in the pandemic, um, and I think also people just become more aware of their neighbours and the community they live in, and that yeah, has building been, community, yeah, has yeah, been shown absolutely. to be really beneficial. Now, this isn't new, okay, no. and some people might be listening, going, "It's going back in time." About this. Going back in so, time. so when I looked into it, Jane Jacobs 
is kind of the person that's, that was, was kind of a catalyst for this back in the 60s, an American-Canadian journalist, author, theorist and activist. Um, and she influenced a lot of urban studies um, so, through sociology and, and economics. Um, she, she was a real activist in the 60s in sort of town planning mm. sort of um, field, which was, I would, I would say, almost exclusively male-dominated. So, you know, a female going in and, and you, know, um, you know, raising these issues. Um, and she was, she was all about um, organising grassroots efforts to protect neighbourhoods from... Uh, urban renewal and slum clearance mm, mm. so oh, okay. you know, so a lot of cities certainly here in the UK experienced um, that um, back in the 60s um, so yeah I mean that's kind of it and so, so Jacobs Jane Jacobs along with Lewis Mumford um, are credited with inspiring what's called the new urbanist movement which is uh, an urban design movement promoting environmentally friendly habits by creating these walkable neighbourhoods um, with a wide variety of housing and employment opportunities, mm. so that they. Um, if you think about it, room. I'm listening to you talking about this, and for me, it's it's going back to how people used exactly. to live. So, you live in a community. The services that you need are in the local community. You don't yeah. go to an out of town shopping centre. You don't drive halfway across to, you know, there's an element of self sufficient. And if you were a crofter. And you lived somewhere, you were completely self sufficient. You fed yourself on the food that you produced, and that. Mm -hmm. So it's almost, it's what we're having to do is engineer community because everything's changed so much. And the way we live has changed so much that these people are are actually using, Mm. taking us back in concept a few hundred years. Yes. And so I think that the, the shift to where we are now was very much a kind of structural and an economic and yeah, you know, all yeah, of these kind of things. Yeah. Um, so, and I think that, and obviously a shift needs to happen there, but there's the mm. mindset shift as well that needs to happen for people to yeah, think about. When yeah. you think about living in an inner city, yeah. that doesn't sound appealing to no, a lot of people. Uh, good geogra- people. Geographical terms that kind of almost maligned these and pe- areas. People, yeah. yeah, and people who, who do live in inner cities perhaps feel and certainly are perhaps viewed mm. by, by others as well, you know, you don't have the means to be mm. able to live mm. in your leafy suburbs. So it's about mm. shifting that as well. Yeah, so yeah. I think it's it's great. And yes, it's not new. But the good news for me is this is happening in lots of places around the world. So go and look um, online and, and mm. see if it's happening in your local area. Well, it's giving people the opportunity to move to areas where communities encouraged as well, isn't mm. it? Mm. You know, where they can reduce, like you said, the carbon footprint, things like that as well, yeah. and actually get involved. Great stuff. Well, my last story mm. is completely bonkers. So, you know, this really is. I mean, this is it's almost science fiction. So, um, for me, it opens a further discussion about how we view intelligence. Yeah. Okay. So we're getting ap- deep and philosophical. We are, we? yeah. So apparently mushrooms can communicate with each other using up to 50 words. 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 Mushrooms. So next time you're picking up your packet of chestnut mushrooms in <laughs> Aldi, you potentially, they might be listening. No, I'm joking. Maybe the one you pick up is because they're going, me, yeah. <laughs> So mathematical analysis of the electrical signals fungi send to one another has identified patterns that bear a striking structural similarity to human speech. Okay. This is mathematicians going crazy. This yeah, is. I, yeah. know, I don't know. Whether, this is already yeah. blowing my mind. I know it's kind of STEM subjects craziness. Yeah. Previous research had suggested that fungi conduct electrical impulses through 
long underground filamental structures called hyphae or hyphae, mm-hmm. H-Y-P-H-A-E, hyphae, hyphae, mm-hmm. um, similar to nerve cells in humans, mm-hmm. interestingly. It has shown that the firing rate of the impulses increases when the hyphae of wood digesting fungi come into contact with wooden blocks. Mm-hmm. So meet some wood, goes, mm, yummy. And these impulses start firing. Right. Yeah? Raising the possibility, fungi use this electrical language to share information about food or injury. Right. With, with distant parts of themselves or with hi-fi connected partners such as trees. Now I've read something about trees and um, fungi or mycelae being connected before. Yes. Yeah. But that's two completely different... Um, I don't know, I was going to say creatures, um, things, plants. Uh, organisms? Organisms, yeah. So, Professor Andrew Adamatsky at the University of West of England's Unconventional Computing Laboratory. Ooh. Oh my goodness, there's the king of the boffins. King of the boffins. Uh, the unconventional computing <laughs> we're, laboratory. We're the boff- we're, we're, uh, they, these boffins don't get in somewhere else so they've created their own. Do you think they have a rivalry with, with the, conventional the conventional computing or computing laboratory? I'd like to see that debate between really? the two. Um, he analysed the patterns of electrical spikes generated, generated by four species of fungi. Enoki, which is a type of mushroom, isn't it? Yeah. Split gill, ghost and caterpillar fungi. So again, uh, apparently these, they're at different speeds and speak differently. <laughs> these, these fungi do. So the boffins did this by inserting tiny microelectrodes with substrates colonised by their patchwork of hi-fi threads into their mycelae. I just I so don't, I, I my wish, brain does not, is not functioning. I wish our listeners could see your face right now. <laughs> you're reading what you've written down because it doesn't quite compute. It doesn't compute, I have no idea. Inserting tiny microelectrodes into substrates in their patchwork of hi-fi, hi-fi mm-hmm. cells. Okay. So the research published in the Royal Society Open Science found these spikes um, changed with different levels of activity, resembling vocabularies up to 50 words. Wow. Yeah. Right, okay. Now, I used to remember, wasn't there not a chimpanzee or a, a gorilla that they taught was able to deal with 70 words? Oh. Uh-huh. So it's not far well, off that. Yeah, but that's a bit more, you know, they have a mouth. Yeah. Uh, and, the, and the distribution of these fungal word lengths closely matched those of human languages. Split gills were the most communicative. Right. Split gill mushrooms. Okay. Now, the most likely reasons for these waves or, or of electrical impulses um, are to maintain the fungus integrity, you know, protect it, mm-hmm. security, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, but also to report newly discovered sources of attractants and repellents. So, I don't like this, I like this. But it's telling other people. Again, yeah. there's community not, not there. Not people, other mushrooms. Sorry, other, other, <laughs> other, other, other mushrooms. <laughs> So the the kind of telling other uh-huh. mushrooms, mushrooms yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah. That, you know. So I, I put in brackets sense of community in my notes <laughs> in the mushroom community. Um, yeah. Some other scientists, however, are sceptical, aren't they? So they want to see more evidence before they're willing to accept it as a form of language. I'm not really surprised, no, to be honest. No. So Dan Beber, who's Associate Professor of Biosciences at the University of Exeter, and is a, a member of the British Mycological Society's 
Fungal Biology Research Committee. <sighs> oh, crikey. I want his business card. Yeah. Like a piece of A4 paper. Um, he thinks more research is needed before we see fungus on the Google Translate <laughs> choice. <laughs> Boffin with a oh, good sense of humour as well. But I mean, that is some, uh, you know, the this world system thing and the, yeah. the thing I read about trees and, and, and mushrooms, I'm going to have a look at that again on my cell eye. There's definitely communication yeah. that is well above our yeah. intelligence to comprehend, isn't there? I, so. I think the thing with that is when we start talking about words and yeah. language, yeah. we human beings think of the words yeah. that we communicate. Yeah. And, and for me, what that's, this story is saying is that there are different ways that organisms can communicate. Yeah, absolutely. And what they're saying is there's more complexity yes. in how mushrooms communicate than you might yes. think. Yes, so you might just so, sit there uh-huh. absorbing stuff and then yeah. growing. Yeah. yeah, It's actually communicating with uh-huh. other uh-huh. with other fungi. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just a bit difficult to get my head around. Yeah. You know, it's well, amazing, I think, right? let's, let's just leave that with our listeners and see yeah. how they... <laughs> See how they respond to it, but hey, that's part of what this is about, isn't it? We want to, we want to give people, um, yeah, we want to open people's minds to things that you might not have thought of. You know, we get caught up in lots yeah. of stories. It's like just take your mind somewhere like this. You know, it's, it's like science fiction on the earth. It isn't is. It? You know, it is, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah. Well, I want to finish up with this is a fairly short story, and I'm going to post the the video of this on our website and and in our Facebook page because it's very cute. Um, so this is about a baby giraffe that's been helped to walk again. Oh. So, um, so this calf was born in a San Diego zoo, and her front limbs were bending the wrong way. Basically, so her, her two front legs were bending the wrong way. Um, so it was a condition called hyperextended carpi. Now, <laughs> the thing is, right, a giraffe, a baby giraffe. Okay, when when she was born, she was five foot ten inches tall. I know, yeah, bigger. Uh, and weighed a hundred pounds. Okay, yeah. so dealing with limbs that are not forming properly is is much more challenging in a baby giraffe and than is, yeah. lots of other baby animals and, and, and humans so the the zoo the this fire park zoo um uh, staff got orthotics expert ara mizarian um to fit braces um to the baby uh, giraffe's legs now he has fitted braces to paralympians children with scoliosis but never ever to a baby giraffe so you can see on the video um what what happened and and you know so the, the i think there was like 20 iterations of these braces so we started with what they use for humans and then adapted that obviously for for um, the longer limbs and, and the, the mechanics of the giraffe legs um and that something they did was they put giraffe patterns on the braces which is what they do for kids they put patterns on them so yeah, they don't look yeah. like just bits of metal um and so they did it with the giraffe so after 10 days in this custom brace, the problem was corrected. So it doesn't have to wear the braces forever. It's corrected the problem. Oh, corrected the actual yeah, problem. Yeah. So the, the giraffe's bones and muscles adapted yeah. to the change. Yeah. The, oh, wow, cool. Because brilliant. they just knew the way it was bending, if it was to stand up, it was it was going to do itself more, you know, more oh, right. injury. So, yeah. so it doesn't need to wear them for the rest no. of the All right, cool. No. And so it's not the first time, though, that, that zoos are looking to medical professionals that treat people to help them treat animals. Um, so earlier this year, a, a zoo in Tampa teamed up with similar experts to successfully re- replace the beak of a cancer-stricken great hornbill bird with a 3D printed prosthetic. I think I read about that. Yeah. yeah. And then in 2006, um, a blue nose, uh, sorry, a bottle nose uh, dolphin 
that had lost its tail after becoming tangled in ropes from a crab trap had a prosthetic fitted. And that, that story inspired the 2011 movie Dolphin Tail. Right. Which I've never seen. Well, I've never seen that either. I'm interested. So we'll leave you with that. It's the image of, um, actually, didn't, I didn't give a name to the, the giraffe, um, but this little baby giraffe. Graham. Graham the giraffe, yeah, okay, we'll leave him with Graham the giraffe running around the zoo. Right, well, once again, eclectic mix of stories. Certainly was, so yeah. That has, um, I'm still in some kind of mushroom shock. I can see so, that. Yeah, I'm yeah. overwhelmed. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so we'll leave you with those um, and just to, to say again um, we would really 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 love if you would be willing to those of you that are still listening even after Dan's bonkers story um, to leave a review for us on your podcast platform it, it would just mean that more people get to get to hear about Time for the Good News thank you for listening bye for now <laughs>